Abraham's the kind of guy that will take what I tell him and tell other people. He's the kind of guy that's going to do sadaqah and mizpah, righteousness and justice. So I'm going to tell him what I'm going to do. And so then he tells Abraham, hey, we're headed down to Sodom because it's a really wicked place and we're gonna check it out. And if it's really wicked, we're gonna destroy it. Well, Abraham must have had a little kind of inkling of how bad it was. Rumors had got to him because he starts going, oh no. Okay, God, if there's 50 righteous people there, would you spare the city? God says, sure. 45, sure. 40, sure. 30, yes. 20, absolutely. 10, done. And you wish maybe he had asked for one because what would have happened? I think Romans 5 tells us that there's this reversal that's happening right there. It's massive that instead of sin transferring to sin, instead of death moving to death, that maybe righteousness could also move from one righteous person and cover a whole multitude. It's just a phenomenal introduction to the idea of atonement. So you have that. Abraham stops at 10. Two angels head down to Sodom, and that's where we pick up the story. And here's what happens in this chapter. First of all, the, there's a demonstration of how bad it is. Then second of all, there's the deliverance of Lot. Then there's the destruction of Sodom, and then the demise of Lot. It's a very, very dark, horrible chapter. And that's what we're gonna do tonight. So Merry Christmas. <laughs> Verse one. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they eight. So here's what happens. These two guys, men, they, they're angels, but they appear like men. They come walking into Sodom. There's always this gate. And who happens to be sitting in the gate? Lot. That would be like saying Lot is the county commissioner of Sodom or Lot's hanging out with the mayor. He is in the place where all the really important people are. These are the bigwigs. These are the named folks, right? So how is Lot, this outsider essentially, how has he gotten elevated in the city of Sodom to the point where he's sitting where the most important people sit? No one knows. Here's my guess. Uncle Abraham. Because remember what happened? 
there's these five kings that came down. They swarmed Sodom and they took everyone from it and all the goods of it. The king escaped and they left. And Uncle Abraham, because of Lot, said, I'm gonna go rescue him. He rescues Lot, all of the stuff, all of the people, brings them back and then gives it all to the king of Sodom and says, I don't want a single shoelace from you. So Lot now is hanging, he's a, cele- he's a shirt tail celebrity, right? Like remember Cato Kalin? O.J. Simpson, right? He became huge. Why? Because he's a shirt tail celebrity. Lot now has a, I personally believe, a seat at the gate because of what old uncle Abraham had done for him. So he's now, man, he's important. He's a big dude. So when these people come in, these two men come in, he immediately shows hospitality to them. And what do they do? Nope. That was 4,000 years ago. That was like if a man goes to shake your hand and you say, "Uh uh-uh. Like it's insulting. Like this is an insult to Lot that they would not receive his hospitality. It'd be the same as you not shaking the hand of someone that came up to you. So why are they doing that? No. We prefer to camp in the town square. It'd be like, a relative coming to visit you and say, hey man, I got a spare bedroom. Nah, I'm gonna just throw my sleeping bag out in the 7-Eleven parking lot, right? Why are they doing that? Why are they saying this? I think it's a test. It's a test of Lot. Lot, do you know how bad this place is? You know, deep in your heart, what would happen if we stayed the night in this square, don't you? You already know how bad this place is and yet you continue to live here. It was a test because in that city gate, there would have been other very important people who are hearing this conversation. Well, while they step up, are there other people in this city, important people, that will offer hospitality as well? Or is Lot the only one? Is there 10 righteous people? And no one else speaks up. So Lot presses them and presses them, right? It's like they're almost secret shoppers. Remember that? Like, I don't know why high schoolers don't have, like, that's my dream job. I want to grow up to be a secret shopper at REI. That's what I want. It's almost like they're, they're, they're in disguise coming in, checking this place out, seeing how bad it is, and Lot's like, there's no way I'm letting you sleep out here because I know how bad this place is. So he presses them. They come, they eat a meal, and then verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. It's Boatnik weekend. And they called to Lot. (laughs) Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him. I don't want you guys to hear how bad this place is. And he said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot 
and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck blindness, then men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. It just gets worse, doesn't it? So, couple of notes on this. When you grow comfortable in Sodom, you get corrupted by its sin. So, perhaps in verse 8, you groaned. Hey, I have two virgin daughters. Take them. Do whatever you think is good. It's literally the word tove there, which should ring in your mind. There's a whole idea of who gets to decide what is good and what is bad. What is tove? And ultimately, God is the one that decides what is tove. You guys decide what, what is tove to my daughters, right? He offers his daughters to these men. A mob of men, probably 30. That's what people estimate, 30, 40 men. Cities back then weren't massive. So what's the deal here? Lot had been in Sodom so long that his eyes had adjusted to the darkness and he didn't even know what he was doing anymore. He'd been in there so long that what had happened to him is he had gone down a trail, a path now that this seemed logical to him, right? It gets really dark because when you, when you get comfortable in Sodom, your eyes adjust to the dark. And there is a move sometimes in churches, maybe not that dark, but there's a move in church sometimes to almost act like we have to become conformed or comfortable with the world in order to save the lost. In order to save them, we have to become like them. So if you know the church, there was the emerging church about 15 years ago, and that's what they said. We have to become like the church, and, or like, excuse me, the world in order to save those that are outside. We gotta be comfortable with Sodom, essentially. Um, one of my favorite stories of this is a buddy of mine who's a pastor, good friend. He went and checked out this church. It was the number one most innovative church back in like 2005, 2006. So it was the big one. He went, knocked on the door. Hey, can I talk to a pastor? And this guy, yeah, let me go get one. And guy comes out, hey, hey, let's just go across the street. Uh, let's get something to drink. So they go across the street, well, it's a bar. And so this guy's like, well, you know, I'm gonna order myself a beer. And he orders like this big gulp of a beer. And so my buddy's like, oh, interesting. He goes, what do you have? I said, he said, I'll have a Dr. Pepper. Oh, would you like a shot in that? No, I'll just have a Dr. Pepper. He's like, well, why not? And he goes, well, you know, I don't really drink. And the guy's like, well, why don't you drink? And he goes, well, to be 100% honest with you, I'm a pastor of a church. I'm just trying to find out like what's so innovative about you guys. <laughs> and this guy's like, he got super defensive. Like, well, come on, man. What are you here? Are you judging me? He's like, no, man. That's within your rights to do what you need to do and whatever. I'm not judging you. Jesus will judge you. I'm just made decisions in my life to do what I'm supposed to do. But it's like there's this idea, this kernel that's still in the church that we have to get comfortable with the way the world is in order to save the lost. And when I go visit churches, the first thing I do is I look at their bulletin. And I want to look at what are you saying about what you have to offer? And like there's this generic kind of thing that I see very often in churches that I visit. It's like this, hey, come join with us. We've got upbeat, upbeat music. 
casual atmosphere, friendly people, right? Applicable messages, not too long, right? It's like this, there's like this template now of here's what you need to do. Come see what this church has, has to offer you. And when I read those, I think, if I'm an unbeliever, I'm gonna say you have zero to offer me because there's better music on the radio. If I want a casual atmosphere, I'll just stay at home. If I want to enjoy myself, I'm gonna go to the lake with my boat. What is compelling about the church is Jesus Christ. That's what's compelling to people. And if that isn't always put out there, Jesus is compelling. If that's not always put out there as a church, to me, you've now cozied up to something you should not cozy up with. Because over and over, what I find in my own life, when I talk with people, what is compelling is Jesus. So I personally try to keep myself always saturated in the gospels, looking at the countercultural way that Jesus lived life because I think it's the right way to live it. And that's what is compelling to people. That's what saves the lost. Not my comfortableness with Sodom or my comfortability with the world or how um, cool we might appear. What saves people ultimately is Jesus, all right? So he cozy up to the world, gets bizarre, bizarre. Verse eight is bizarre. There is a hint of something in it, So even to this day in Afghanistan, there's this thing called Pashtun Wali. Has anyone seen the movie Lone Survivor? I'll tell you about it. It's a true story. We're in Afghanistan. SEAL Team 6 gets sent in to Afghanistan. They're on these mountains. This goat herder kid discovers them. They have to decide what are we going to do? Should we shoot the kid or let him go? If we let the kid go, our position's gonna be compromised. Well, it's very hard to shoot a kid. So they're like, okay, gotta let him go. Well, the Taliban now know where they're at. They come after them. They start shooting, they start fighting. All of them die, except for one guy. Um, Mark, Mark Wahlberg or uh, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch or whatever that was. That dude, <laughs> he doesn't die. I haven't seen the movie, but I know the story. He goes into this Afghan village. They bring him into their home. The Taliban then come to this village and say, hand over the American, we're gonna kill him. And this whole village gathers around the house and says, no, no, Pashtun Wali, you will have to kill us all in order to get this American. And because they did that, his life is saved. That's this idea of hospitality. That's what Lot here, it's a very ancient code uh, among those kind of people like, "Uh uh-uh, once he is inside my home, once he's in my home, then I will do anything to protect him. Now that's a great, great culture. But what Lot forgot was this. His highest goal is to protect his kids and his family. Like number one, he's a dad. And so he, because of culture now, is gonna sacrifice his two daughters in a super ugly way and, uh, for the code of hospitality. I say that because I'm encouraging you guys to you know, be hospitable and be foster parents and be safe families. And that's hugely important, but never at the expense of your kids or the safety of them. So there's always the balance. We don't make the mistake of lot and say, well, I'll sacrifice my kids for this good idea. No way. I'm always careful. My wife and I, we're very careful about who we have staying in our home with us. We won't sacrifice our kids for 
hospitality, all right? Um, thirdly, the big debate here is what do these guys want to do to these men? So there are certain people that interpret where it says here, bring out these men that we may know them. They say that know them is not homosexual. It is actually when these two guys had come into the city, the, the, the ruling people had not checked their papers. And so they're coming to know their papers. It, it, we want to see their passports, which is really strange, right? Why are you coming at midnight, this mob of men, half naked to see their passports? That just seems weird to me. The word know here used in verse five is the exact same word know used in verse eight for his daughters. They have not known a man. That same word is used for Adam when he knew his wife, all right? No, no way. And then Lot, why would, why, why would Lot say, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly if they're just trying to see their passports? So it, it falls apart. Um, it's not politically correct to say this today, but the Bible says homosexuality is a sin. You can try to argue crazy theories about it, but at the end of the day, if you really believe the Bible, the Bible condemns homosexuality. But homosexuality is not worse than any other sexual sin. So the mistake the church has made is we've, we've acted like homosexuality is like some kind of really, really bad sin when the Bible just says it's just a sexual sin. And the Bible never condemns same-sex attraction. It only condemns same-sex action when you act upon those things. And we have to be very careful to differentiate those things. So I talk a lot now to parents. I just talked to a parent of, of someone whose son has come out of the closet and they, they're, you know, I'm homosexual now. And they're like, what do I do? What do I do? I said, well, if you had an uncle that committed adultery, sexual sin, what would you do to him? It's the same sin. It's just a sin. It's the same thing. Don't make it into something that it's not. You, you still walk with them and love them and do exactly the same things you would do with them. And I always steer people to this guy. His name is Ed Shaw. He, has a, uh, he belongs to this website. It's called livingout.org. And it's people that have same-sex attraction, believe the Bible, and how they're walking that out today. And Ed Shaw, to me, is the hero of that. He blogs and he writes, and his story is real simple. At an early age, he had same-sex attraction. He went to his church, told his pastor. His pastor said, okay, everyone has sin. What are you gonna do about it? And so he pledged, I will never act on these things. And then he continued to be involved in the church. This pastor said, you have a pastor's heart. You should go to seminary. He goes to seminary, gets a degree, comes back, and now is a pastor at a church. And he blogs about what it means to be someone that lives with same-sex attraction as a Christian who believes in the authority of the Bible. He's brilliant. And I always am, hey, read this guy, read this guy. He's really, really good. So the Bible, homosexuality is a sin, but it's just a sexual sin like pornography, like adultery, like fornication. It's in that same list. Jesus makes a list of them in Matthew 19. He does not differentiate between them and say, this one's a lot worse. Oh, this one's okay. He just says, they're all the same. They're sexual sin. And we move forward the same way you would with any kind of sin. Psalm 
51, as we did on Sunday, all right? Um, One rabbi I read said this. He said, the reason why the city of Sodom did this to strangers, and they believed they did this all the time to every stranger, was they wanted no stranger to move into their town and share their prosperity. So it was actually motivated by money, which if you look at Ezekiel 16, which references this, it says the sin of Sodom is pride, fullness of bread, and that they did not care for the poor and the needy. So that's where they get that idea from. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. Last thing to notice on this, it's verse nine. They said, stand back. This fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. Lot, been there for decades, still does not fit in. You're an outsider. You're a sojourner. Lot had too much of God to fit into Sodom, but he had too much of Sodom to enjoy God. He's in this kind of amphibian place that's just a bummer. And they don't even accept him. So you have this brutal demonstration of why this city has reached a termination point. Then verse 12 says, the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, son-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in this city? Bring them out of the place for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before Yahweh and Yahweh has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his son-in-laws who were to marry his daughters, get up, get out of this place for Yahweh is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. Lot is a joke to his two son-in-laws. You know why? Because he was so worldly. His life looked no different than anyone else living in Sodom. And now he's going to talk about God? Really? Haha. <laughs> That's funny. It's like a dentist with bad teeth. Bro, you have not demonstrated any kind of a difference. He has no, I call it, prophetic voice to actually engage people in the urgency of their times. Do you want a prophetic voice? Do you want to be able to urge people about the times that we live in? I think here's how you get a prophetic voice. Number one, have something to say. And number two, have your life preach the sermon. You got to have number one, something to say. And then number two, your life better be preaching the sermon. Lot, his life had preached no sermon And now he's trying to have a prophetic voice to get his son-in-laws to do something and they're just laughing at him. He's a chameleon of a Christian and it's a joke to these guys. And they say, "Mm -hmm. I'm not going anywhere. I don't believe you. So then as morning dawned, this is all night long. Talk about a nightmare of a night. It's all night long, just like a horror show. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife 
and his two daughters by the hand, Yahweh being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly for I can do nothing till you have arrived. Therefore, the name of that city was called Zoar or Little. Look what happens with Lot. He's gone through this horrible night, right? They tell him, dude, get out of here. And what does verse 16 tell us he does? It says he lingers. He'd warned other people, get out of here, man, it's terrible, right? He'd seen how wicked the city had become, the mob that attacked his house, right? He'd seen the power of these angels to like blind these guys with a flash of light. He'd witnessed all this stuff and he lingers. I think that's such a warning. Hebrews 3 over and over says this. Today, today, today is the day of your salvation. Do it or else your heart might be hardened. That's a Matt Heavenly paraphrase of quite a few texts there. Don't linger because you don't know what's gonna happen to your heart. Don't linger. You gotta do it now. Something changes in us. And here's what I liken it to. I call it my alarm clock theology. It's like this. Let's say tomorrow morning, I have this grand plan to go run five miles. Be a miracle, but maybe it happens. And so I say, okay, beautiful weather right now, five o'clock, it's light, it's cool. I'm gonna go run at 5 a.m. So I set my alarm for 5 a.m. But there's a bunch of converged stuff happening and I kind of get caught up in it and I'm thinking about that. So I don't go to bed till 12.30. Man, I go to bed, five o'clock hits fast. I'm woken up the first time that alarm goes off. Man, it hits me hard. Oh, I'm up. And like a supercomputer, my brain recalculates all the necessary time I need to get up, shower, run five miles, read my Bible, pray, get to work. And I realize I can do it with nine minutes less time. So I hit snooze, go back to sleep. The next time, nine minutes later, when that alarm goes off, it doesn't quite wake me up the same way it did the first time. It's a little less. This time I just kind of pound around and I hit the snooze button. Third time it goes off. This time it doesn't really wake me up because the song that's playing is really nice and I kind of like it. And I wake up at 7.30. I just sleep right through it. I think that is often the way God's word hits us. When it hits us the first time, man, your heart is ready for that seed. It's good seed. It goes into a good heart. And it's like, oh, if you act on it right then, there's power. But if you linger, if you press the snooze button, 
to that counsel, to that power, to whatever it is, the next time it doesn't quite hit you as hard. And the next time it hits you even less hard and you linger and linger and your heart gets harder and harder. That's why if you know Hebrews, in chapter five with the conclusion of that whole thinking, chapter five says this. It says, oh, you guys are in elementary school. you've, You've flunked out because strong meat belongs to those who by reason of use have their senses alerted, sharpened. If you don't use it, Hebrews 5 would say, you lose it. If you linger, look out. And that's exactly what happens to Lot. His heart just starts to kind of harden a little bit and we'll see what happens. The next thing that happens is this. He limits his rescue. Look at verse 18, right? They tell him, Dude, run for the hills. Run for the mountain. If you know your Bible, you know this. Like the mountain is always an image of you running up to God. Run to that mountain. Get to that stronghold. Get away. Go up to the mountain. So run, get up on the mountain. And does Lot do that? No. What does he say? Oh, no, man. I can't survive out there. I'm not a prepper. I should have listened to my cousin and put a vault out there. I can't do it. I'm a terrible backpacker. Don't make me go to the mountain. Can I go to this this little town over here? This Zoar. And it appears that they were going to destroy Zoar as well because the angel says, if you're in that city, I won't destroy it. So this city, Zoar, it's a little Sodom. Hey, I know I can't be in big Sodom over here, but can I be in little Sodom over there? I know that's a really, really bad place, but this is just a little bad place. Do you, do you mind if I go there? And this angel's just like, I can just see him just going, oh my goodness, <laughs> what is wrong with you, dude? Fine, go there, I don't care. I got, a, I got business, I got work to do right now. And so he ends up in this little Zoar. If you wanna be free from the junk of Sodom, you swing for the fence, you go for the hill. You don't say, well, you know, I, I know that the big stuff is bad, but a, a little Zoar, a little stuff is okay. You swing for the fence. If your computer is taking you down, you take an ax to your computer. If your phone is messing you up, smash the thing and get a dumb phone. Man, to me, it's you swing for the fence. You don't say, well, I'll just do a, no. We have a really good enemy who always puts a little Zoar in our path of rescue. You think, man, I just got out of Sodom. Oh, I'm good. There's going to be a little Zoar. You swing for the fence. I said that one time when this guy that struggled with drugs, on the way out of the sermon, this, he just handed me his phone. Here you go, man. You're going to get phone calls. But that thing takes me down. So that day, I answered the phone multiple times. People would call, hey, who is this? I said, it's Matt. One guy was like, Pastor Matt? Just Click. Like, bad trip, man. I don't know what just happened. I don't know. This is a totally bad trip. Like, it was hilarious. That's swinging for the fence. This thing's taking me down. Take it away from me. You swing for the fence. But Lot here limits his rescue. And I think his story may have turned out differently if he had just said, you're right. We got to go. We just got to go. He limits it and goes to little Zoar instead of getting out of Dodge. How is Lot saved here? Well, 
it says, it tells us, it's brilliant. It says, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, Yahweh being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. He is seized by the mercy of Yahweh. That's what saves Lot. He does everything wrong. He lingers, he hesitates, he doesn't, you know, he can't convince anybody. It is, he is seized by the mercy of Yahweh. So we have a thing after Sundays where we prepare questions for the community groups. And this last Sunday, we were just getting some stuff, just talking around, really great groups, totally smart group of people. It helps me a lot because it kind of tells me like, man, I didn't cover that very well. So it's super, been super beneficial for me. So um, the, the, we, we're going down kind of, okay, repentance, Psalm 51. First, with your mind, you own it. Second, with your mouth, you confess it. But then the third point, it wasn't quite right. I'm like, oh man, I didn't communicate that right because it was getting hot. So I start trying to compress things. And um, it was, the, the, the way it had been put down was, uh, turn from sin. I'm like, oh, that's not correct. That repentance is not about turning from sin. That's not what it's about. And I have a quote from uh, uh, the, this author, Flanner, Flannery O'Connor. The book's called Wise Blood. When I read it, I thought she was a guy because it's so like brutal. <laughs> and then actually someone emailed me. was like, it's a, it, he's a she. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. So uh, there's this statement. I wrote it down because it was so good. This character in Wise Blood, it's a fantastic book. This character um, has this statement. It says, it was this, it was a deep darkness went into his heart and he knew this. The best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Man, that stopped me. I went, whoa, that's right. Because if you don't have sin, then why do you need a savior, Right? I'm a good dude. I don't need Jesus. This dude got it right. So it's not about turning from sin. In fact, if you turn from sin, that can be one of the most damaging things you do. It's got to be more than that. It's, you don't just turn away from sin. It's you have to turn to something. And so I said the final point has to be this. Your heart returns to him. And that's Psalm 51 verse 1. It is your hased, your loving kindness. It is your mercy. It's captured me again. It's Psalm 1611. Your love is better than life. I said that David, before he committed physical adultery, had committed spiritual adultery. And the spiritual adultery was this. Bathsheba is better than life. Not Yahweh is better than life. Bathsheba, if I could just have her, man, that would be life. It's what Lot had done. If I could just be in Sodom, that would be life. If I could just sit at the gate, that would be life. If I could just, and all of us do it. And when we do that, when we move away from saying, his loving kindness is better than life, when we move away from that, oh, it's dangerous because we're open to all kinds of stuff. We're open to the little Sodoms, the little Zoars. We're open to the, when I then, I well, when I have this, then I'll be happy. Oh, be so careful of those things. See, true repentance means my heart returns to the source of real joy and hased, and my heart returns to Jesus. That's what it is. So, Lot here, 
lingers, and then limits his rescue, and then we'll see what happens with him, but there's one little cleanup point. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before Yahweh. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked up and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overflow, overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. You can read this and you start thinking, man, that's harsh. A whole city wiped off the face of the earth? Why did God do this? And it's very easy to think that in the 21st century, in the safe comforts of an American democracy, where none of us have to worry about a mob showing up at our house at midnight to rape us. Anybody worried about that? I'm like, no way, this is Southern Oregon, man. I got an AR-15, let him come. Right? Zombies, let them come. That's the worst thing. Like, we have to invent danger, right? Look out for the zombies. Really? <laughs> it's like, because we have, we're so safe, we have to invent things now. Look out. Right? It's very easy to think, well, how could God do this? Because we have lost the knowledge of the depravity of humans. We've lost it. By God's grace, I'm glad we've lost it. Totally. We've lost that in World War II, you'd have the Jewish World Congress begging America, bomb Auschwitz. And America saying, but there's tens of thousands of Jews there. It does not matter. Bomb it. It's that evil. We've lost that. Like we can't even grasp that anymore. Like, no, there's got to be a better answer. No, that's the only answer. It's that evil. It has to be bombed. We have to take it out. We've lost how depraved people can become. There's this She's an artist. Her name is, I have to read it, Marina Abramovic. She's Czechoslovakian. And she does this stuff to kind of shock you. And the, she did this thing a couple of years ago where she just stood still for six hours and she allowed people to do anything they wanted to her as she stood there for six hours. I can't repeat what happened to her. In public, depraved. People get depraved if they're given opportunity, the darkness that happens. I just read the, today a New York Times article. You want to read a depressing, sad article that makes you pray. It's called The Boys from Baga. It's about Boko Haram in Nigeria grabbing these little boys and what they, they turned them into these unbelievable soldiers. And the stuff those boys did, you just, you just, you just want to weep. Depra that just happened. That just happened. These boys were just rescued from that. Put in prison because they thought you were so bad. I don't know if we can have you out. 14, 13-year-old boys. Just unbelievable. We've forgotten in the comfort today of how bad things can actually be. And God does this. God, first of all, when it comes to sin, he wants to redeem it. 
He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. How'd that work in Sodom? I don't know. I just know that's God. He says in Ezekiel 18 and 33, he repeats it almost verbatim. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God's not smiling when this stuff happens. It's like the Jewish World Congress, this has to happen. It's that evil now. It's that corrupt. It's that broken. He wants to redeem it. But if people will not be redeemed, then God goes to option number two, which is I'll remove it. That will be removed, which is Revelation 20. One day, all that is sin, all that is evil, God wraps it up, tucks it up, and tosses it into this thing called the lake of fire. It gets removed. And that's the nuclear option. So here, God said, we're at that point. This place is so depraved, we're at that point. It must be destroyed. And then we have Lot. And Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills. <laughs> what the angel told him to do a long time ago. Did you go to the hills? No, I went a little Sodom. Okay, I better go to the hills. Best to just obey with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth. So here there's a debate. Did the daughters believe because of what they had seen in Sodom that the entire earth had been wiped out? Or did the daughters just believe we don't have a chance to find a man? I personally believe because they lived in Zoar that they knew there were still men. They just thought we won't have a chance for men. So there's a debate on that. Our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine. We will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father and he did not know when she lay down or when she rose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made him drink wine that night also. And the younger rose and lay with him and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Pretty bad. Very Merry Christmas chapter, right? You just want to say Merry Christmas when you read it. Like, oh man. A lot, this key character since chapter 20, or six, since chapter 12, all the way up to chapter 20, he's a key character. The last thing we hear about him is this gross tale of incest with both of his daughters in a cave. What a bummer. What a bummer, right? The groups that he peoples, the Moabites, they are known from this point forward as kind of sexual deviants. The Ammonites, they are known for worshiping the god Moloch, which is that little idol that they'd set on fire and that you would offer your firstborn son on. So it's like, Oh my goodness. Lot lived his life on the edge of commitment. I know that's a promised land over there. I'm gonna get close to it, but I won't be in it. 
right? Both of his children, the Moabites and the Ammonites, if you look at a map, they both live on the edge of the promised land. The edge, the fringe of commitment. They're not all the way in, but they're not all the way out. They're just kind of right there on the fringe and it becomes really gross. That's just a lesson for us. I have this study and I have it written out because of my position. And it's done by a guy named Howard Hendricks. He's a professor at DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary. Great guy. And he looked at 246 of these pastors. They were all seminary graduates. So these are not guys just hanging up a sign saying, hey, come join with me and I'll see how this thing works. These are people that gave three years of their life after getting their bachelor to say, I want to be a pastor. But all of them within two years had left the ministry. And he interviewed these guys to kind of find out what happened with you guys. Because you only made it like 18 months. You only made it a year. What, what happened with you? He found four things. The four things are this. Number one, they had no accountability. Right? They lived in Sodom by themselves. No one around, no community, no elders. They just got to do what they want to do. No accountability. Number two, they all stopped their own personal daily devotions. Now it became a job about teaching or whatever instead of a pursuit of Jesus. Number three, they all said, it will never happen to me. I can survive Sodom. It won't get into me. It won't change me. And yet 80%, 80% of them fell to sexual sin. To me, I keep that in my head because I don't want to do those four things. The Bible says this, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10, take heed when you think you're standing lest you fall. Be humble. <laughs> take heed. Jesus says, pray this way. Lead me not into temptation. I pray that, Jesus, Lead me not in temptation. Keep me from that stuff. I know it's out there. Keep me, protect me, help me to be humble and hungry. In my weaknesses, be strong. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that he will lift you up. Because Lot, we're a lot like Lot's. All of us are a lot like Lot. And if we don't learn the lesson of him, we're destined to repeat it. But here's the good news about Lot. Let me read you one final verse. It's 2 Peter 2, 7. And he rescued righteous Lot. Who? Righteous Lot? <laughs> Did you read verse, chapter 19? Righteous Lot? It's the same thing that's said of Abraham. Abraham is righteous. Lot is righteous. Lot is the example of someone who should not be in the kingdom and is. And that makes me very, very happy. Lot is the Old Testament example of a guy who should not be in the kingdom, and he is. And that makes me very happy. So we can get upset by these things. Jeffrey Dahmer, 
monster. James Dobson says, I want to go talk to that dude. Starts meeting with Jeffrey Dahmer. Shares the good news of Jesus with Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer believes. And according to James Dobson, when he talks about it, got on fire until he was killed by the prison prisoners in his area. Does that make us upset? Like, he, really? He gets in? That monster? We have to be careful because Jesus gives this parable. It's in Matthew 20. It's of a guy who needed to harvest his land, his, his vines. And so he went out at six in the morning, he hired a bunch of guys and he says, hey, I'll give you a day's wage to work for me, a denarii. And they're like, okay, cool. That's what everybody gives, perfect. And then he noticed, man, we don't have enough people. So he went back out again at nine and he, and he got a whole bunch more people. He goes, hey, no contract, I'll pay you what's fair. And then he realizes, I don't have enough people. So he goes out at 12 and gets more people. Hey, no contract, I'll pay you what's fair. They agree. Then three o'clock, he realized, I need more people. Goes out at three o'clock, gets more people. Hey, I'll pay you what's fair. And then at five o'clock, one hour before quitting time, he hires some more guys. I'll pay you what's fair. They work for 45 minutes. And then he pays the guys that had worked 45 minutes a day's wage. And the guys that had worked three hours a day's wage. And the guys that had worked six hours a day's wage. And the guys that had worked nine hours a day's wage. And when he goes to pay the guys that had worked an entire day, they got mad. And he's like, wait a second. Didn't we agree that you would work for a day's wage? Are you begrudging my generosity? I never want to begrudge God's generosity. If you want to be generous to Lot, a guy that I just read and say, oh my goodness, praise God. I found this, that the way to a lot of joy is to rejoice in how generous our God is to other people. If you only rejoice when God's generous to you, you're really limited in your joy. But if you're able to rejoice when God is really generous to all these other people, man, it just exponentially increases your joy. Oh, God bless him. Wow, that's so awesome. It's exponential. So I love that part of Lot. But I will say this. Would you rather live Abraham's life or Lot's life? Which life would you rather live? Lot's, wife, Lot's life ends incestual in a cave in darkness. That's his final word. Let me read to you the last word on Abraham. It's chapter 26. Excuse me, chapter 25, verse eight. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. I like that. A good, full, abundant life. And he was gathered to his people. Why is Abraham's life so different than Lot's? I'll give you God's opinion of it. It's chapter 26, verse five. Because Abraham obeyed my voice kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. 
How many commands, how many statutes, how many laws did Abraham have from God? Be circumcised, right? That's really one thing God asked for, be circumcised. That's the, that people know that we're in covenant. I'm gonna bless you, I'm gonna make, do, like God's constantly blessing him and God's requirement is, hey, be circumcised. Really, what God is saying is, Abraham is the model because he trusted me that I was a good and generous God. And his life reflects that. Lot thought he had to go to Sodom to get it. He was constantly looking for life somewhere else. And he dies in a terrible way. Do you trust that God is a good, generous God? When you do, your life will look a lot more like Abraham's than Lot's because you'll keep yourself in his chesed. You'll keep yourself in that place that you know he's life. This other stuff is great, but he's life and he's the source. And that's what I look to. So Jesus, I thank you for this contrast of men. And I know so often that we are a lot like Lot That we keep thinking it's this next thing that will satisfy and finally calm the angst in our soul. And even when it disappoints us, Lord, we still move to a little one. I pray that we would be a people that learn Romans 8, 13, that we mortify the deeds of the flesh, that we swing for the fence when it comes to sin. That we wouldn't linger when you hit us with your word, that we would respond, not hitting snooze, I pray, Lord, that we would be those that, like Abraham, live good, rich, full lives because we obey you, because we listen to you, because we keep your commands, your statutes, your covenants. So I ask, Lord, for tomorrow morning as we rise, that we would not be neglectful to look into scripture, to look into revelation, to look into what you've given to us and that our ears, Lord, would be tuned in to hear from you a word fitly spoken for us for that day that we might obey and trust you as our good, generous, heavenly Father. So go with us, I pray. And I ask this in your name, amen.